Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's time to continue answering people's questions about dating and relationships. A while back, I asked people to email or to comment about their questions, and I got so many that I think this is the fourth episode in which I'm answering people's questions, so let's get to it. This question is from Sa on YouTube. They write, I have PTSD from ex-boyfriends who were physically, verbally, sexually, and emotionally abusive. I'm sorry to hear that, Sa. My husband, who isn't any of those things, feels like I take it out on him when I am triggered because of my expect of, because of my past experiences. How do I stop my triggers from affecting my relationship? End of comment. All right. So you believe you have PTSD from being abused in the past, and your husband, who is nice and is not abusive feels like you take it on on him when you're triggered because of your past experiences. Well, that wouldn't be uncommon. Uh, We would have to wonder if that is an accurate assessment of you. But in general, it would be expected that when we go through relational traumas that they're going to be triggered when we're in an intimate, close, romantic relationship. That's just the way it goes. And you ask, how do I stop my triggers from affecting my relationship? Well, the... You approach it from a uh, holistic approach. You don't. A lot of people say, "I just, you know, I want to. I'm going to try not to be triggered." Well, okay. You have to get therapy, and in therapy, what you do is you identify the triggers. You learn how to regulate your emotions. You learn how to mitigate or reduce the triggering. You learn how to regulate your. You know how to notice your emotions, regulate mainly distress. For a lot of people with PTSD or trauma reactivity, they don't notice that they're triggered until it's too late. And so a big part of PTSD management is knowing when, you know, so if we're on a scale from one to 10, and by the time you notice you're like an eight or a nine, the the trick is, is you have to notice when you're a three on the distress scale and intervene then. You, you can't really do anything once you're an eight. Once you're an eight, you can't think straight and you're completely triggered and you're, you're suffering and you're, you're, you're in a fight or flight or freeze, appease or a faint response and you're angry or hostile or withdrawing or drinking to you know, cope or something. You know, beyond an eight, there's nothing you can do really or there's very little you can do. The key is, is to intervene when you're a three because then you still have the power to think and you can reduce the suffering of going up the ladder of distress. And so, and that doesn't mean you're doing it on your own. You're involving everyone, including your boyfriend, including your husband. So you tell your husband, I'm a three right now and let's do what my therapist said and let's do X, Y, and Z. And also recovering from the trauma in therapy through trauma therapy, you can heal from your trauma, essentially taking away your symptoms and thus your susceptibility to being triggered. And you don't need those coping skills anymore. Uh, I have, and many others, have cured people of their PTSD. Some people don't like the word cure. I don't know another word for it. Completely take away, (laughs) Uh, eliminate the symptoms of, I don't know, it sounds like curing to me. And some people think, well, you know, it's sort of narcissistic to say I'm curing. Well, what else do you call it? I have an expertise. I know how to help people. I know how to get rid of PTSD. What is that narcissistic to say that 
I'm following evidence-based practices and reducing symptoms in someone such that they no longer suffer for the rest of their life from a debilitating disorder, why can't I call that curing? <laughs> I'm proud of my work. I'm very proud that I've eliminated PTSD. And of course, it's a, you know, it takes the client to go along with it. And they're the ones going through most of the courageous moments for sure. But I'm the clinician. I'm, I'm working hard and I'm explaining and I'm with them and I'm, uh, I'm in the trenches with them. So it's not, it's not a small feat. And I've spent a lot of time specializing in it. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, do that for yourself. Find a trauma specialist and you know, reduce your symptoms of PTSD to the point of no longer qualifying for the diagnosis, a.k.a. allow yourself to be cured from it. There's a lot of people out there, but you have to find someone that specializes in it. All right, this next question is from Chrissy. She writes, what advice do you have for someone involved with a real narcissist? And please don't say, just leave. Are there any types of strategies or phrases that can be researched? Is it possible to have corrective experiences with narcissistic people without them knowing it or asking for it? If they are just, if they are just receptive to this dynamic and not acting out, is success possible without formal therapy? End of question. So it sounds like Chrissy, it sounds like you're involved with a person that you believe suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. I'm not sure. And you don't want to leave. And you're trying to figure out a way to engineer corrective experiences such that your partner no longer will suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. Well, yeah, I mean, it's possible. Uh, it's not easy. It depends on the level of severity. If it's moderate or minor, the narcissistic pathology yeah, if you engineered it right, it's possible over the span of 10 or 20 years to provide corrective experiences for that person such that they suffer a lot less or maybe making it manageable or something. But it would be hard to do that. And uh, so, you know, I'm guessing you're, you're trying to get the person to go to therapy and they're refusing. And even with therapy, narcissism is tough to treat. It takes a long time, and uh, the corrective experiences that happen in therapy are, are not easy to engineer from a therapist uh, standpoint, so to do it while you're in a relationship with someone. But I've, I've done this sort of work before. Like as in a similar situation, I've had clients in the past where I was working with one partner, individual therapy, who had a narcissistic uh, partner, narcissistic husband, and they he was in individual therapy and the couple was in therapy. The, the wife first came to me. I worked with her for a long time, many years. And over that time, a lot of her conversations were about her husband. And I talked with her about, you know, recovering from her own traumas from him and from her childhood, such that she differentiated enough to really change the system you know, she came to me with the the configuration of the system was really quite abusive emotionally, where the husband was abusing her frequently and verbally and emotionally, and she would just sort of take it. And then through talking with me, she learned she didn't have to take it. She recovered his lot, very hard work, and she drew boundaries. And she said, "I'm no longer going to take that." And she was she stood up for herself in very healthy ways, very nice ways. And this really threw him for a loop, and he, he was very uh, you know, discombobulated for a while. 
But ultimately, it was good for him because he started really looking at himself and going like, wait, you know, something's wrong here. And he, he sought out individual therapy and then the two of them went to couples therapy. And this is, you know, over the span of, I don't know, 15 years or something. And he uh, worked on himself. And uh, so one could say that with her therapy with me, she learned how to change the way that the two of them interacted such that he was given the space to figure out that he needed help for himself. And then he proceeded to go to therapy. But it was slow going. The, his traumas ran deep and were not easily washed away. But they changed their dynamic and, and she didn't want to leave. Uh, a lot of people were telling her to leave him. And anyone who would have heard her story would have thought she should leave or at least that she would be justified in leaving. But she didn't want to. She loved her husband. She loved her family. She she thought about leaving for sure. There were moments. But overall, she wanted to stick it out. And she stuck it out through a lot of thick and thin. And in the end, she told me that uh, he was changing and he, he still had issues, but it was a lot better. And the abusive behavior you know, really decreased by 95% or something. And, you know, she, she stood by her decision. Uh, this next person, Una, now backing up, I'm not saying everyone's supposed to do that. (laughs) I mean, by no means, if you're being abused, uh, then, and you want to leave, then of course leave. (laughs) Like uh, it's a, but you don't have to leave if you don't want to, but you really should look at why you don't want to leave. Do you, do you not want to leave because you're afraid of being hurt or do you not want to leave because you still believe in the relationship? You know, And those can be hard to distinguish sometimes because you might have to dig down really deep. Una on YouTube says, can a relationship really be salvaged once it gets abusive? Is leaving the only option when abuse occurs? Yeah, I feel like I just answered that question. But to expand on it, there are couples therapists out there like myself who – will absolutely work with uh, couples where abuse is taking place uh, below a certain threshold. And I've done it before. Uh, Couples therapy can be a very effective way, evidence-based, to treat domestic violence. It depends. And you have to work with a couples therapist that really knows what they're doing. Otherwise, they might run the risk of placating or enabling the abuse. It's very complicated. But some of the I, I've treated perpetrators of domestic violence in my career. I was they were you know they committed a crime of domestic violence were um, you know court mandated to go to a year of group therapy for perpetrator treatment and I worked with them and and learned a lot from that it was early career and then subsequently in couples therapy I would occasionally come across people on the spectrum and. I would work with them and there are ways to work with them. There are kind of different phases. Like in the beginning phases, I won't label it as abuse, but I will definitely validate the victim and tell them that they don't need to put up with that in so many words. But eventually I will label it as abuse. I will turn to the abuser and say, you know, what you're describing is abusive and let me explain why I use that word. And I and I feel it's very important that I use that word. I don't want to shame you. I know that you've been relationally traumatized. And I know you're very reactive. And I know you can become overwhelmed. But what you're describing to me is is abusive. And let me let me tell you why. 
it's abusive because you're making the other person walk on eggshells around you all the time. Your anger is okay, but the way you direct your anger is so aggressive and scary to your partner that they feel like they have to placate to you in order to survive. They feel they can't say what's really on their mind for fear that you're going to explode. And that is the definition of abuse. And you might not see yourself that way, but that's what you're doing. And I'm here to help you to stop that. And I'm here to listen, and we're, we're going we're gonna to work on it. And if you want to salvage this relationship, this is priority number one. And there's two things that need to happen. One is the victim of the abuse needs to know that that's what they're experiencing and that they get that validation. And that you, the, the, the abusive person, the person that is doing the abuse, needs to really look hard at your behavior. There's a big difference between advocating for yourself, expressing your feelings, and terrorizing someone. And you're not terrorizing your partner all the time, but you're doing it sometimes. And, and I know you don't mean to, really. I know that you, you, this emerged from your past, and I know that you're a good person. You're a moral good person, but you are, I, one could say, accidentally creating an environment that is abusive for your partner, and let's, let's aim to stop that. And that means that you have to be humble. That means that you have to say – it means you have to admit to yourself that you have this problem. And it means that you have to work with me on it. And these are going to be some hard conversations. So I've done that kind of work with people. And there's various different degrees of that. Some, for some partners, it's an ongoing thing that they engage in, the perpetration of intimate partner violence or high control. And for some people, it's just occasional. You know, there, there are some couples that come to me well, where they will describe one incident in which that happened. You know, in our society and maybe even clinically, we tend to bifurcate people into two camps. It's like you're either abusive or you're not. But the fact is, is that everyone has been on the spectrum of abusive behavior. Everyone has committed some form of at least mild, mildly abusive behavior, meaning that it intimidates the other person unfairly. And when we're upset – when we're activated, when we're traumatized, when we're triggered, when we're when we feel put upon and or we're drunk or you know something, we will do a lot of different kinds of behaviors. And if we engage in behaviors that that scares the other person into submission and makes them walk on eggshells, then according to at least the broad clinical definition of abuse, that, that's abusive. Very few abusive people identify themselves as being abusive. Most abusive people identify themselves as expressing their feelings and justifiably advocating for themselves. So what I do, you know, I work with them is, yes, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to advocate for yourself. But let's do so in a way that doesn't literally terrorize your partner and, and cause them to walk in utter fear around you so such that they're afraid to open their mouth even under calm circumstances for fear that you're going to explode or you're going to go on a two-week 
silent treatment of them that makes them feel like crap. Like this is um, what we have to change. And so, uh, so, and those are tough, those are tough conversations. You know, the person that I'm labeling as being abusive, it can take months for them to go through the steps of admitting that to themselves, of anger at me, resistance against me, intimidating me, deep, deep shame and self-blame to eventually just admitting it. And, you know, there are couples that I worked with for a long time where the abusive partner would, would it, it wouldn't take much. In fact, the victimized partner could just look at the abusive partner and say, you're doing that thing again. You're, you're, you're being abusive. And, the, you know, this is outside of therapy because they'd done enough work in therapy and the abusive person would, would say, oh, really? Am I doing that thing again? I need to, okay, what am, what am I doing? What mode am I in right now that's causing terror in my partner? Okay, I need to, I need to you know, it's, it's confusing in the moment because usually people are being activated, but, but it's absolutely possible. Anyway, let's go on to another email here. Uh, have, well, so backing up, having said that, there are pitfalls to treating people with domestic violence because, like I said, you could placate it or enable it. And literally people can be murdered. I, I, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I think when women are murdered, the most likely perpetrator is their spouse. And so this is real. And I've seen it, uh, not in my own clients, but I, I had a colleague who had a client who killed his husband. And we need to be very careful about not not just murder, of course, but, you know, assault or other kinds of things, pulling the woman out of th- pulling the victim out of therapy because the abusive person doesn't want to face it. So there are th- it's a it's a case by case basis. And a- any good clinician before heading into a situation like that would consult either with an expert or a, or a trusted colleague. All right, this next email or this is message from Sylvia on YouTube. They write, we online chat and interact with so many people on a day-to-day basis these days. This makes me wonder if it is even possible to meet someone without going on social media. Why don't guys pick up girls in public like they used to in the past? <laughs> and have comment. Yeah, it's it's interesting thing that's happening, obviously, with the advent of social media and dating apps and this kind of thing. And... It stands to reason that people are hitting on each other less in public, but I don't know. It, it's possible that that is still happening. Well, I know it's still happening. There's plenty of people that are, uh, quote unquote, picking up people in public, whether it's at a bar or at a, some other function, work. There's a lot of people that meet romantically at work or church or some other kind of scenario. So, in other words, there's still a lot of people, and I can't remember the exact stat, who are meeting without using the internet. And it's diminishing year to year. And we would say, well, that kind of sucks, you know, because meeting in in real life is kind of nice. But I don't know. I mean, the point is, is we want to meet someone, right? And if we meet in public at a bar or at work or at church or online or on Tinder or on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Uh, the point is, is meet someone. So uh, I suppose if you like the lifestyle of meeting people in bars, then 
I would guess you, you're just not going to the right bars <laughs> because um, it's the pandemic right now and all the bars are closed in Seattle. But I, I guarantee you, <laughs> and I've been to them, not on purpose, but, you know, for one reason or another, there is a lot of uh, mingling, single, single and mingling <laughs> things happening at various places. So it's just a matter of where you go. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I get it. It, sometimes you might have this preference and I, I, I imagine it's just a matter of where you go. But the other thing that I might say is that as people become more isolated with the advent of entertainment that you can do so much of in your own office by yourself, there are a lot of people who are very scared socially. And and this is borne out in the data that more and more people are anxious socially and depressed because of our uh, our flashy devices that addict us and keep us away from other humans. And then when people go, hey, let's go out and meet someone, they're either too terrified to do it or once they get there, they're too terrified to do anything about it. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s, we didn't have the internet. We had Nintendo, but that was only so much fun, frankly. And the, the only thing you could do was go out, leave the house. And, you know, with me and my friends in high school, essentially that meant just driving around looking for people to interact with. <laughs> and we met a lot of random people. That was a big deal in our life. And most of the people that we knew in you know the later part of high school were people that we met randomly that that we just randomly walked up to and talked to and and a big part of our life was like that and so it it wasn't easy it you know it wasn't terrifying it was absolutely terrifying to do that and we had to support each other as friends as we did it but it was the only thing we could do if we had you know, video games and social media and Netflix and all the other things that people have in high school, I'm pretty sure we just would have stayed home or we would have stayed home a lot more. And uh, that now you get different kinds of skills. It's not necessarily a downward turn. We would have been gaining skills with video games and with online stuff and computer stuff and socializing online. We, you know, younger people are much better at meeting people online and much better at communicating online, much better at knowing how to tone, you know, how to write a comment that is t uh, of the right tone and and getting uh, satisfaction socially online. So it's not like it's only a bad thing, but it is a bit of a conundrum as we continue to go down this road about how do we help people to have real in-person experiences such that they're not 25 and terrified of talking to people. Because in order to get our, our needs met, in all likelihood, you're going to have to be confident enough to talk to strangers and to take that risk and to get shot down at times. I'm not talking about picking up people in bars. I'm talking about just meeting people. And, and, uh, we're have we're we're going in the wrong direction around this, 
uh, it's pretty clear that in 50 years, we're, we're going to have a massive problem and really no one's talking about it. Now, maybe it won't happen. You know, maybe we'll figure out some other way to, you know, overcome this. You know, nature finds a way, right? We, we need social interaction, but time will tell. And so, Sylvia, you're, you know, it sounds like you might be lamenting that shift. You might be kind of like, oh, the good old days when, when people just hit on each other in bars and it was just easier. It wasn't easy. <laughs> you know, it wasn't easy in the past, but, you know, perhaps it was easier but it wasn't easy. <laughs> anyway, let's read another one. Um, Anna has a similar question. Why is dating so hard in this digital age? Are dating apps making us better or worse at connecting? How can one look for real commitment? How can one, how can one looking for real commitment find success by using dating apps? Well, so a similar kind of discussion. And now the narrative, of course, is, you know, we live in this hookup culture and young people are sort of vapid these days and they just want to have sex or boys just want to have sex or, and I don't know, I, 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 I think the data points in that direction kind of, but it certainly isn't as dire as a lot of people point in it. I think what happens is, is dating is hard. <laughs> yeah. I grew up, like I said, before the internet and it wasn't like dating was easy back then. <laughs> I mean, and it wasn't like sexuality was this breeze. I mean, it was, there were the same problems and the same disappointments and the same frustrations. Exactly. If anything, right now, it's a lot better. But, you know, an improvement on something that sucks, it it still sucks. (laughs) And what people do today is they're like, well, there must be something wrong with dating apps. You know, it must be Tinder's fault. It must be social media's fault. Well, before we had all these things, it sucked, and we didn't have anything to blame. It just sucked. <laughs> Dating sucks, particularly when you're young. There's a wide variety of maturity levels, one. Two, there's a wide variety of uh, goals in life. You can have a 20-year-old who is absolutely ready to get married and have kids, and you could have another 20-year-old who will never want to get married and have kids. And the last thing on their agenda is getting married and having kids. And though, and those two 20-year-olds can meet on Tinder and date and have a massive incompatibility comp, you know, uh, crisis and wonder, oh, what's wrong with Tinder? And I'm like, no, it, it's normal to date and discover incompatibilities. It's normal to date and have a lot of foibles. It's normal to... Uh, t- fail as they say it's not and it's not a failure you know we have this expectation that well with all these dating apps we should be able to meet the perfect person right no uh that it's it, it it's tempting to believe that and if you would have asked me 30 years ago it you know in the future everyone's going to be dating online you're going to be fill out these profiles and personality tests and you're going to be able to shop around and Do you think that would increase the likelihood of meeting your soulmate? And I'd be like, well, yeah, because before the internet, you just had to wander around the city and hope you bumped into them (laughs) at the right time. And and, it it was like, you know, how do you find your soulmate without the internet? You literally just had to wander, hope that on a Friday night, they happened to go to the same party you did, you know? So it was... 
it was not so it seemed but that it seemed like it would help but and it seems like it might help but it certainly hasn't made it easy right <laughs> it still sucks so people out there as you look at your dating life it's all about your expectations i talked about this in the last episode if you had if you head into dating saying this is going to be glorious it's going to be all good times and I'm going to meet my person and it's going to be great. No, I mean, maybe, but not likely. <laughs> you know, that if you are, if you decide you want to date, which is one of the only ways you can really meet your soulmate or, you know, one of your soulmates, then you are agreeing to the following things. You are agreeing to be dumped. You're agreeing to dump other people. When you start dating, you know, the likelihood is that you're going to date, I don't know, at least a dozen people, if not hundreds of people, before you find the one. So that means that in all those other relationships, whether it's 11 or 300, someone is going to have to dump somebody. It's pretty rare when both people dump each other at the same time. It happens, and that's the best case scenario. But usually it's one person dumping the other, whether it's after the first date or after three years, someone is going to dump somebody. Someone's going to be the dumper and someone's going to be the dumpy. That's what you're agreeing to. And we understand that, right? It's logical. <laughs> so to head into dating and going like, well, I don't want that to happen. Well, <laughs> I mean, unless you randomly happen to meet the right person right at the first person, then which happens sometimes, then that's what you're agreeing to. So, so the other thing that you're agreeing to is you're going to meet some real duds. You're going to meet some some angry, aggressive, horrible human beings. You're going to meet some psychopaths. You're going to meet some narcissistic people. Why? Because you can't possibly screen those people on Tinder or even if you met someone at a bar. You're just not going to be able to detect. You're going to date people who are heavily addicted to something and have massive problems with their addiction. And you won't realize it until you're three months into the relationship. That's what you're agreeing to. You're going you're gonna to date someone who's going to cheat on you because they have issues of various sorts that result in them cheating on people. You're going to be tempted to cheat. You might cheat. You know? you're, you're agreeing to dating uh, people who might be very ambivalent or might be very shady about the way that they tell you whether or not they're dating other people. Because that's how they like to date. They like to be very shady about that. No, I'm not dating other people when they kind of are. That's what you're agreeing to. You're agreeing to dating people who, on the third date, might look at you and say, yeah, I don't like, you know. You're, you're agreeing to th things that are likely to happen because you're entering into the human race. <laughs> you're not entering into a rom-com that doesn't exist. You're entering the real human race. And there is a wide variety of humans out there, all of which you have a chance of meeting. And anyone who's dated can attest to that. They'll just be like, wow, am I learning the range of humans on this planet? <laughs> I've met this sort of person and that sort of person. And it, you know, it's going to happen. Everyone has traumas to varying degrees. Everyone has personality problems to varying degrees. Everyone has issues to varying degrees. And, and you're going to be uh, the victim of that. And you're going to victimize other people with your issues. 
And that's going to happen. So as you head into dating, you're heading into one of the most messiest processes of the human race that's ever existed. And it existed messy before the digital age. (laughs) So people out there, don't blame Tinder for humans. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying you have to date. You don't have to, but when you head into it, don't think you're heading into a fantasy world. It's a it it's a crazy jungle, you know? And the the thing I said in the last episode was accept it and deal with reality and then enjoy it for what it is and enjoy the moment. You know, so much of the frustration that people experience in dating is but I haven't met the one yet and I've had to date, you know, six people for about a month and I get my hopes up and then they dumped me. And so I don't want to date anymore. And if that's your choice, then by all means, that's your choice for sure. But sometimes what that means is you headed into dating with the expectation that that wasn't going to happen. But that's like kind of a best case scenario. (laughs) Uh, You know, there are stats on this, but for a lot of people, a good number of people, well, I'll give Bob as an example. He he online dated for years, and I think it was some it was three hundred or five hundred, something like that, somewhere between three and five hundred women he dated in the Seattle area before he met Colleen, before he met the woman that he's been married to for I don't know ten or fifteen years now. He went. He it's a numbers game, <laughs> you know. If he gave up. After the first hundred messy experiences he had, he never would have met Colleen. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to do that, but at, to me, that's that's the ad, he had the attitude that you need to have, which is I'm doing this thing whether it's messy or not, and it's going to be messy, and I'm still a good person, and I'm going to go to therapy, and I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to get support, and I'm going to give it my best. And people are going to dump me, and I'm going to dump other people, and that's just how it is. And I'm not going to give up. I'm, I, I'll take a break every now and then, but I want, I really want companionship. I'm going to make this happen, and that's how you do it. And that can be demoralizing for sure. And I know some of you out there are just like, oh, but I don't want to. It's you know, and if you've been traumatized in some way, then that's going to you know get into there, and that's going to complicate things. So it's not easy, and I don't want to make it sound like it's easy for everybody, but that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> uh, and get support. Uh, and the other thing I'll say is, in our society, we tend to look toward our romantic relationships as our only way to meet our attachment needs, which if you're having trouble with dating, then look toward other relationships, look towards family, look towards best friends to meet your attachment needs. You might not get your romantical needs or your sexual needs that way, but you can get a good majority of your companionship companionship needs met through non-romantic relationships. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next comment is from Jappy Ivy. Jappy Ivy? Jappy Ivy? What are the pros and cons of being in your 30s and dating someone 20 years older? (laughs) What are the pros and cons of being in your 30s and dating someone in their 50s? 
I don't know what the research, and I'm guessing there isn't research on that, but I'll say there's nothing wrong with dating someone 20 years older than you, uh, although society would like to think there's something wrong. Research shows there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's a little higher likelihood of the relationship ending um, with divorce, but it's not a strong signal. But anyway, um, I'm just trying to – so if I was just to speculate, pros of dating someone 20 years older, I don't know. I mean because someone in their 50s as opposed to someone in their 30s, it's hard to generalize. You know, the, the common generalization is, well, if you're in your 50s, you're more mature, but that's not necessarily true, right? Or if you're in your 50s and you have more life experience and you can da-da-da, but that's not necessarily true. <laughs> I mean, because by the time you reach your 30s, there's not a huge leap between your 30s and your 50s. There's there's a, there's a, there's changes for sure, but we're we're not talking about as fundamental of a change as when you're 15 to 25, right? Uh, pros and cons. I mean, I guess I could rattle some random culturally notions out there, but I I don't know. I I can't think of anything generalizable, so I'm going to move on. All right, this new uh, question is from June. They write, I've been in a relationship for five years. I'm 21 and he's 31. And he's slowly starting to talk about settling down with me. I feel like I might be missing out on something if I do settle down with him. How do I overcome this? End of question. Um, Okay, June, you're saying you've been – so you started this relationship when you were 16 and he was 26? Um, that's a little bit of a red flag there because it's a pretty big difference between 16 and 26 in a lot of jurisdictions that's flat out illegal. And that uh, is a red flag for coercion and high control in a relationship. So I hope that that's not happening for you. Um, just because you're 21 doesn't mean you're still you're not still in that relationship. So that's what I'll say about that. But you're also saying you feel like you might be missing out on something if you settle down with with him. And to separate that from the possible concern of you being in a high-control, coercive relationship, uh, just generally speaking, being married, you are – settling down, you are going to miss out on something. <laughs> That's the whole point is when – you marry or when you settle down, you're always sacrificing something. So your your feelings are correct. You you will miss you will absolutely miss out on things. It's all about choices. You can't you can't choose all decisions. You either choose to settle down or not. And both you get things and both you lose things. Both both decisions you get things and both decisions you lose things. And so it's just a matter of does it matter to you? And what are the pros and cons? What's the cost-benefit analysis to you? Is it worth the sacrifice to you? It sounds like it might not be, or at least you're contemplating it. And so I would you know, continue to explore that. Tassia says, I'm 21 and my boyfriend is 37. What are your thoughts about age gaps in relationships? Well, Tassia, I did a whole episode on that called Long Di- Age Differences in Relationships. I don't know, about a year ago. When in all detail of the research me and Berto talked about for a long time, listen to that one. All right, let's go on to that. So uh, Colin from the podcast, he organized a bunch of these emails and comments into different categories. And this next category is 
quick round dating questions. Okay. Actually, let's take a break. We'll get back. I'll continue. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist. But I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. Lizame says, what are some tips for someone trying to date while dealing with an anxiety issue? Well, uh, treat your anxiety. So go to a therapist, work on your cognitions, work on, I'm guessing, exposure therapy would help, work on your schemas, your narratives, because uh, that's... You don't dating while anxious will have a lot of problems. So you want a a very robust treatment strategy for that. And people with anxiety out there, a lot of people are suffering from anxiety. And just because a lot of people have anxiety doesn't mean it doesn't need a therapist to help you with. Just because it's common doesn't mean it's not a serious clinical issue. Claire says, "What are your thoughts about dating exes?" Uh, it's great if you want to. Uh, it's, it's no problem at all. Eba, how do you perceive dating has or will change for people due to the pandemic? Uh, well, it definitely has changed because you, it's hard to date random people when you might get infected or you might be a vector for the virus. So some people are dating at six feet of distance. I know a lot of people are doing that. And maybe once they meet the right person, then they will kind of self-quarantine for 14 days so that they can start making out. (laughs) Uh, Other people are just giving up on dating because it was hard anyway. And with the pandemic, it makes it really hard. So, you know, that's what I'm saying. Uh, We'll change. Soon we'll all be vaccinated because everyone will do their uh, part and we can all go back to normal. Chrissy says, what, what causes people to have physical or emotional dating preferences? What causes people to have physical and emotional dating preferences? We don't know. Uh, we have hypotheses here and there that relate to, uh, like, sy- symmetry. We seem to uh, prefer symmetrical faces and bodies. When we look at people cross-culturally, that seems to be universal to humans. And the speculation is that symmetry signals good genetics and that when genetics have gone wrong, there there are usually or sometimes asymmetries in the way the face or the body looks. And so a lot of times the best-looking people on the planet are just the most symmetrical in terms of their face. Uh, also average, uh, when you average out faces – with a computer, 
uh, it usually produces a very uh, appealing face. So we're uh, that's another idea is that we're we're not we're looking for symmetry and normalcy. You know, the best looking. You know, we tend to think of oh, best good looking people are at one end of the spectrum. One other way to think of it is that their features are extremely normal, very average to the culture. That's always the key is, you know, whatever culture and whatever is your template of a normal face in your brain, that's what you're looking for because that signals uh, DNA goodness, you know, because the further you get away, you know, the more mutations you have, the more chance you have of of not being able to reproduce that person and or having harmful mutations and that sort of that's the idea evolutionarily wise but but of course you know uh the kinds of physical and emotional dating preferences we have really go far far beyond symmetry and average looking you know we have i like tall people i like short people i like brunettes i like people with this i like people who have you know who like to bike ride on the weekends, you know, and these are this evidence of just how complex we are as humans. And, uh, you know, there are various different ideas of this. One is, is that how, you know, whatever we were imprinted on when we were young. So say you're 13 and you have a huge crush on someone, which wouldn't be uncommon. What were the qualities of that person? Maybe that person imprinted on you, uh, a set of qualities that is now deeply associated with romantic attraction such that by the time you're 45, you still have that uh, association. So, you know, wherever, wherever 13 year olds are, you know, the, the closest possible romantic partner to any given 13 year old, whatever qualities that target has, can become the template of the perfect person moving forward. Um, that that's there seems to be strong evidence for that. Uh, other things are just looking for people that are similar to us, or maybe people similar to our parents. Anyway, there's you know, of course, it's all just speculative and case by case basis. Uh, Jamie, how do you reassure your partner as a polyamorous person in a monogamous relationship? How do you reassure your partner as a polyamorous person in a monogamous relationship? Well, I don't really understand that question, Jamie. Either you're the polyamorous person or the other person is a monogamous person. I'm guessing you're the polyamorous person and your partner is the monogamous person. Uh, this can this can be done. I mean, by definition, I mean, it, it depends. So if you – what I would – the language I would use is you have someone who – has a sexual orientation of polyamory or romantic orientation of polyamory and the other person has a romantic or sexual orientation towards monogamy. And those people can exist in the same relationship and have very long, trusting, caring conversations about how everyone can get their needs met. The poly person usually wants to be involved with other people to have their best life. The monogamous person does not. What do you do? Do you have a monogamous relationship? Do you have a poly relationship? Do you break up? Um, and all configurations are possible and all and none of the configurations are not going to have problems. Even po- even two poly people have problems. Two monogamous people have problems. So it's just a matter of working, working through those feelings and listening to each other and taking it slow. 
and not doing anything without everyone being on board. Kathy, multiple female friends of mine and I have male partners who are not as sexually available as we are. How can I increase the amount of times I am having sex per week? And why do men in long-term relationships lose their libido? End of question. Um, so that's a generalization. It's actually uh, not generalizable. The larger question is there are almost always libido differences in relationships. And it, it, there are general things you could say about gender and heterosexual relationships, but generally not. We usually associate loss of libido to women in our culture. But as you're pointing out, Kathy, you and all your female friends – it's the males that are losing their libido, and that happens all the time as well. So the, there are many different – so there's two different paths of discussion. One is, is that how, as a couple, do you deal with libido difference? Because like I said, there's almost always a difference. One person wants to have sex once a week. The other, one, the other person wants to have sex every day. What do you do? And often one is shamed. It's like, there's something wrong with you every day. I mean, there's something wrong there. Okay. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Your libido is yours and it's okay. It doesn't mean you get your way, but it means that you're not wrong. And it means that you enter into a conversation. Now, maybe you only have sex once a week, but it means that you talk and you work it out and you maybe try different approaches and see what works best for everyone. And so... Uh, so there's that topic. The other topic is just lack of libido or losing one's libido. And there are many different things to talk about. Too many to even list in a short summary. There are so many roads to a loss of libido. Also, the, even the phrase loss of libido implies that something was lost. It could just be a change in their life. They, you know, some people just change and one year they want to have sex a lot. The next year they don't. And that's okay. We don't have to pathologize that. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about it as a couple, but we, uh, there's a lot of things to say. And in couples therapy, individual therapy, sex therapy, we create a lot of space for education, normalization, discussion, validation. It takes a lot of time. And if you read, you know, Vogue magazine, uh, you know, how to spark your sexual life. And, you know, these tips are fine, but they imply somehow that if you involve food while you're having sex, it'll, it'll bring that spice back to your life. And it's not likely. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're just so, you know, let me just rattle off very quickly like 1% of the possible roads to take when you're trying to work on libido. Hormonal changes, i.e. birth control pills, uh, sexual traumas, not having the sort of sex you want to and not being able to communicate about it, depression, anxiety, work stress, children, pets, not getting enough sleep, sleep apnea, diet, uh, uh, shame, sexual shame, Body shame, big one these days. Some people literally cannot look at themselves in the mirror naked. Some people literally cannot even get naked around their partner. I'm not saying you're supposed to, but I'm saying, and it's not because it's just a mild preference. It's because they are deeply ashamed of their bodies. 
And so some people literally don't want to have sex because they don't want to, they don't want to not only have their partner see their body, but they don't want to experience their bodies. They want their body to be something that they don't have to recognize because they're so ashamed of it. And so in having sex, you are often intimately put in a position where you have to acknowledge the way your body is. And anyway, so so those are just, <clears throat> you know, like I said, 1% of the possible things. And just those things, I hope people understand, some of them are like a lifetime of therapy to work on. They're not easy. So that's what I'll say about that. Uh, Nutica says, why do we as a society glorify significant others and refer to them as completing the other person? <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with romance. There's nothing wrong with narrativizing or, you know, mean, creating meaning out of companionship in that way. So we, we don't want to look down on people that say that, you know, you complete me, that whole thing. Uh, but there's also nothing wrong with not being able to really relate to that and saying, you know, romantic relationships are great, but, you know, I'm not going to say that that person completes me. That's okay, too. Shouldn't each individual be whole and content to themselves before getting into a relationship? Uh, that's complicated. And, of course, in society, most people are going to agree with you. They're going to be, yeah, you have to, you have to, uh, you know, see, shouldn't each individual be whole and content in themselves? Shouldn't everyone be content with themselves before getting into a relationship? Well, what do we mean by that? Certainly, self-esteem is great. And helpful in a relationship, but not necessary to have a successful relationship. Two, we are not uh, creatures that live by themselves. We are social creatures. And so whether it's romantic relationships or otherwise, we need relationships. And one could say that we need relationships to complete us, that if you put us in a hole and isolate us, we will not do well, <laughs> you know, and the pandemic is kind of showing that, right? That we cannot live without other humans. We we need contact. We need relationships. And so uh, this. So sometimes I wonder when people say you need to be okay on your own before you can date. I wonder if that's an unrealistic expectation of humans. That somehow you're supposed to be completely okay alone, and. Then and only then can you be in a relationship. I, I don't think that's true. Have you said that if someone is in a constant state of running from their traumas through relationships, then yeah, uh, taking the time to recover from their traumas through relational therapy, by the way, um, would be in order. Uh, Mora says, I found out I was cheated on recently. I still have a lot of anger and pain but we're trying to work things out. A lot of the memories I shared with them are now spoiled. How do I get beyond this and find pleasure in the memories we share again? What are some ways you can show your boyfriend that you appreciate love? Oh, it's a different question from the same person. Okay. Okay, Barat. So you're saying that you were cheated on and you have a lot of anger and pain. Very normal. You're trying to work things out and you have a lot of memories that you shared with your partner that are now spoiled. And you're asking, how do I get beyond this? And yeah, I get this question a lot, this sort of question. How do I cope? How do I move on? How do I get beyond this? You don't. Those memories are spoiled. <laughs> and that's what happens when you're cheated on. 
That's what happens. It doesn't necessarily ruin the relationship, right? But it affects it. And you've been affected. And it's going to take a long time. And typically, this takes months, if not years, of, of hard recovery therapy, by the way, before those memories can look good to you again. So that's what I'll say about that. Uh, Simu says, a guy I'm talking to says he likes me, but will then ignore my calls. He'll send me really small, how are you doing texts every couple of days, but never initiates meetups, usually saying that he has a lot going on. This has gone on for months. At what point should I leave the situation, especially since I like the person back? Um, I don't know, Simu. Uh, it sounds like a tough situation. You like them, you're reaching out, and they just they refuse to meet up and they say they have a lot going on. Now, certainly a lot of people would say, uh, you know, he doesn't like you. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he likes you as a friend or he likes flirting with you, but he doesn't like you enough because if he liked you, he, he would want to meet up with you, right? When you like someone, you want to meet up with them uh, unless it's a pandemic, right? So it could be an absolute signal that he is very overtly kind of, you know, telling you that he's not into you, he doesn't really want to date you. And you say, but who knows? You know, maybe he's anxious. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't know that you like him. I don't know. There's too many options. You say, at what point should you leave the situation? Well, when you want to, you know, leave it when you want to. Do you want to leave the situation? Then leave it. Uh, have other options available. Have, if this isn't, is this meeting your needs? I guess would be the question. Is this relationship with the guy meeting the needs that you're, that you're trying to get met. If not, then find someone that does. You deserve that. Annabelle, how do you maintain your own identity independence while in a relationship? That's an interesting question, Annabelle. How do you maintain your own identity and independence while in a relationship? Well, this is a squishy area as well because getting back to what I was saying before, we don't necessarily need to in order to get our needs met. We, we have a need for an identity and we have a need for uh, some independence, but uh, usually where this question is coming from is from people that when they are in a relationship, they really forego who they are. And so I'm guessing that's where it's coming from. You know, based on their relational traumas, they, they, their version of love is to forego themselves, meaning that when they were young, they were made to feel that in order to be lovable, they, they couldn't really assert themselves. They couldn't be them. They had to submit emotionally to the other person. I don't know if that's what Annabelle's talking about, but just going down that line of thinking, obviously getting therapy you know, and relational experience is such that you can get in touch with who you are. And then once you're in touch with who you are, then you won't be able to help but to retain your identity in a relationship. Uh, so that's a that's very short answer to that. Uh, Hate1c3, I don't know, does that spell something? Uh, says, um, I'm really suspicious of coaches because they act like therapists but have no credentials. They don't have any industry ethical standards or education. What makes Mark Rosenfeld a qualified coach people in relationships? Oh, <laughs> so a while back... I had Mark Rosenfeld um, on the podcast. He reached out to me and uh, 
we collaborated and I liked him. I liked him a lot. And that's when I asked for all these questions on dating actually. And I got so many that um, that's why I'm doing all these episodes. But so this person is saying, you know, I'm really suspicious of coaches because they act like therapists, but they don't have credentials. They don't have ethical standards or the education. Um, well, so I will say that some coaches do have credentials and they do have ethical standards and they do have the education. That's what's kind of weird about the coaching profession, if you will, in its current state. There are people who have a lot of education and are very good. I, I had a colleague, I guess I could call him, in Seattle who was a coach and he was not a clinician and we shared a lot of clients. Uh, he would he he would actually send me a lot of clients. A lot of people would come to him because he was a very uh, good coach, and people would you know he had really good word of mouth, and people would go to him, and then he would realize, hmm, I think this is a clinical issue, and he would refer all his clients to me, or a lot of them anyway. And uh, he was very good. I don't know what his credentials were, but people really appreciated his service. You know. So you can have those kinds of people and you could literally have a 13-year-old who calls himself a coach. <laughs> a 13-year-old could say, I'm a life coach. You know, So it, it's that kind of label. It's, it's not regulated. It doesn't have a professional identity that's strong. It's, it's developing. And in all likelihood, 20 to 40 years from now, there will be a state-regulated label of coach. It's just a guess given how things are headed. And you will need a degree and there will be ethical standards and there will be education requirements and uh, you can – and there will be a licensing process in by the government. It's probably going to happen because actually that's the way counseling used to be. Uh, way back when, when I was starting, there – you had uh, registered counselors – well, I won't go down that road. It's just kind of a boring road. But anyway, the point is, is that you have some coaches who are very qualified and some who are not. And yeah. And you, you know, what makes Mark Rosenfeld qualified to coach people on relationships? Well, we ha you have to ask yourself, who is qualified to coach people? Okay. So according to the various definition of definitions of coaching, literally anyone is qualified to coach people because it's not a clinical degree and it's not regulated and there is no set ethical standards that is uh, uh, adopted by the consensus. There are ethical standards that, are, uh, that have been developed, but not every coach adheres to that, those ethical standards. In fact, I would say a, a minority do. Um, and those ethical standards include when you have a clinical issue, you do not treat it. You refer them to a you know qualified mental health clinician. So, um, what makes Mark Rosenfeld qualified to coach people? Uh, there are there's no definition of qualifications, and and this is important that people understand that when you hire a coach, you understand that there is no regulation on that person. Now, that person might follow ethical guidelines, that person might follow a certain code of education requirements and whatever, but there's no guarantee. Uh, there's also no guarantee that if you, f if you go to a clinician that you're going to get treated well. <laughs> so it just raises the likelihood of 
getting a good service, an ethical, effective service, when you go to a licensed, you know, ethically trained person, like in my field of marriage and family therapy or a psychologist or something, it raises the likelihood that you're going to get a good ethical service, but doesn't guarantee it. Now, are some coaches out there doing very questionable things? Yes, but for sure, I've heard stories, and there have been studies, that some coaches will say that they don't do clinical work, but they very much dip into clinical work. Someone will say, I have social anxiety, and the coach will say, yep, you have social anxiety, and here's what we're going to do. That is a clinical judgment and a clinical uh, arena. <laughs> It'd be like me trying to treat someone for a broken arm. You know, I'm not a physician. I don't have a license to practice medicine, and coaches don't have the um, credentials to treat mental health issues. You know, the, the realm in which coaches are, are okay are – you know what, I'm just sort of at a weird point in my life and I don't know which direction to go. Should I move? Should I change my careers? Now, some would even say that's clinical because there are people that say, no, that's a clinical issue, you know, uh, career canceling. So there's sort of a gray area there. But yeah, do some coaches act unethically and illegally? Yes, happens all the time. Um, do some licensed therapists in my field act illegally and unethically. Yes. (laughs) So it's not just coaches. And I don't know what the rates are, but it's sort of an issue that uh, as an industry in mental health, we need to do a better job of educating the public and working with coaches, uh, ethical coaches, to provide education about how consumers can protect themselves, you know, because there, some people might perceive like, oh, that's a coach. That person has a snappy website and, and says they're a coach. They should be fine when that's not guaranteed, right? Anyway. All right. I'm determined to finish all these questions. When does uh, – Pete says, when does requesting something from your partner become controlling? Well, it's debatable, but the general line is when it's intimidating and the other person feels like they don't really have the freedom to say no. Um, that's generally what we would say is the threshold of controlling. Next question from Francesca or Francisca says, what should people do before getting into a relationship? What should people do before getting in a relationship? Um, so there's a lot of different things I could say, but the very short answer I would say is nothing. I mean, 12-year-olds are having crushes on people and getting into a one-week relationship in middle school left and right. So, And they're not doing anything to prep for that relationship. <laughs> uh, now, of course, case-by-case basis, if someone needs to do something to protect themselves or to recover from something or to work on something or to check in on something or to build up a certain self-awareness before dating that would help them, then, okay, case-by-case basis. But we are designed for relationships. We evolved to have romantic relationships for the most part, and some of us not. But most of us have a drive for romantic relationships and have been doing so well before there were therapists or self-help books. So uh, 
if you want to do something to prep for a relationship, then great. But generally speaking, people don't have to do anything. They just have to just have to muddle their way through it. All right, here's another poly question. Sophia says, what do you do if you want an open relationship with a partner who doesn't want an open relationship? Um, well, <clears throat> it depends on a lot of things. But if you want to preserve the relationship with that person and you also want to start dating other people, then the ethical thing to do is to attempt to uh, convince your monogamous partner to open up the relationship. And there's various different ways to open it up, whether it's just you or it's both of you or one at a time or whatever. Uh, There's a lot of ways to do it. And you only do it when the other person says, okay, let's, let's go for it. And there are various different ways in therapy to work on this, to reassure the, the monogamous person that you still love them and that you'll be there to talk about things and whatever. And sometimes opening a relationship just means that you flirt with other people or you just go on one night stands with people or that you both have sex with, you know, it's just a lot of different, you know, things that people are looking for, but you don't do any of those things until the other person is a hundred percent on board and you take it slow. Um, now if you're in a situation where you're like, well, I can't cope with an, with a closed relationship, but I want to keep my partner. So this also might be a path of a discovery for you of, is it a deal breaker for me to be in a non poly relationship is, do I need to be in a poly relationship? And so you might be on a path of discovery where you're like, okay, my partner really doesn't want to be poly and we'll probably never be, I'll probably never convince them to be poly. And so I need to break up with them. Although I like him, I I just, I I need to be in a non-monogamous relationship and that's a deal breaker for me. So there's a lot of different things to discover, but the thing you don't do is coerce your partner into opening up the relationship. That's not okay because it almost always ends up in true, true harm on the other person and for you. And it's not ethical. So if it's a deal breaker for you, it's a deal breaker and you have to break up. If it's not a deal breaker yet, and or you believe you might be able to convince the other person, then you go on a campaign to convince the other person to address their fears, not coerce them, but talk about how you can address each one of their concerns and, and maybe experiment and see if it works or not. This next question from Melissa. She writes, what is your stance on incorporating porn and open sexuality into relationship? Uh, and a question, what is my stance? Uh, it's fine. <laughs> like, why would it, why would any clinician have a negative stance against two people watching porn together or, uh, you know, begin a poly relationship. Completely fine. It's just whatever anyone wants to do. <laughs> but of course, I guess in our weird world, I guess some people are against that. Uh, I don't know why you would be against two people doing what they want to do when it doesn't cause anyone any harm. And before I get emails, yes, I recognize that the pornography industry can harm people for sure and has harmed people for sure. But there's a lot of pornography produced by ethical producers who do not harm people. So it, 
pornography isn't universally harmful. It can harm people. And consuming pornography that doesn't harm people is important. And there's research you can do to make sure that you're consuming pornography from ethical sources. All right, BTS says, why do I always look to find new people to date the second my needs don't get met by the person I'm currently dating? How can I stop this urge? End of question. So I'm guessing, BTS, that you might suffer from relational traumas related to developing avoidant attachment style. I don't know. Of course, you want to talk with a therapist about it. But a common thing for avoidant personality, avoidant, um, uh, avoidant attachment style, is when things are going a little bit wrong, a little bit askew, a little bit challenging, a little bit hurtful, a little scary, the avoidant person will look for any way out, whether it's I need to move out or I need to break up or I need to cheat or I need to find someone else or I need to start flirting or I need to drink or I need to go in the garage and smoke pot, whatever it is, or I need to work more or I need to watch more sports, or I need to work on my car more, or I need to hang out with my friends, or I need to go to the casino and gamble. There are various different somewhat socially acceptable ways of escaping from your relationship. That, And one of them is this massive urge to date new people. Now, there's nothing wrong with breaking up and dating new people, but it sounds like you notice that it's a problem for you. Uh, so I would have therapy around it, avoid it. I would have a therapy to investigate it and it's possible that they would discover that you have avoidant attachment and you need relational experiences to um, cure you of your attachment insecurity. Catherine, is it normal to fall out of love or at least seemingly so while whilst you and your partner are really busy and rarely talking to or seeing each other? Is it normal to fall out of love while you and your partner are really busy? Uh, yeah, I mean... Falling out of love is a personal observation that cannot be measured. So is is one person's falling out of love, another person's just experiencing a lot of distance, you know? But is it normal to fall out of love? Uh, is it normal to – I guess the question would be, is it how common is it for people when they're really busy to feel like they've fallen out of love with their partner? I would say that's not very common because most people will narrativize their relationship as the love is is sustained, but there's distance. So, but, you know, it doesn't sound completely strange to me. Tasha says, am I bound to have a marriage like my folks? How can I break the cycle? Uh, no, you are not bound to have a marriage like your parents. Absolutely not. Uh, you're in the risk. Um, and how do you break the cycle? You go to therapy and you have awareness built and you also have uh, relational uh, corrective experiences such that you can break the cycle. Tree says, when should a couple think about starting therapy? Uh, right away. <laughs> I don't know any couple that doesn't need to be in therapy. I don't know. I don't know any couple. There is no couple on the planet that I've ever seen that does not need occasional therapy. I would find a therapist if you don't if you feel like you don't need a lot of therapy, then I would find a therapist that would meet with you like once a month. I have I have plenty of couples where I just meet with them once a month because we went through a period where I met with them once a week and uh it's a wonderful opportunity to revisit your relationship, talk about things, get things on the table, and to 
reinvigorate your love and sexual life. Another question here, Jamie. Do you think that a marriage of four years is able to recover after there has been domestic violence incidents? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do I think that a, mar- that a four-year marriage is able to recover after there has been an incident of domestic violence? Of course. <laughs> now, will it? I don't know. Do you need to try to recover? I don't know. Will the threat of domestic violence make it unwise to continue with the relationship? I don't know. But yeah, plenty plenty of couples. I've treated many, many couples who have gone through an incident of domestic violence and one person went to a holding cell and was charged or even just gone to, you know, I've talked about how early in my career I used to treat domestic violence perpetrators who were court-ordered to domestic violence treatment. And most of them stayed in the relationship that they were charged in. So, yeah. All right. This next uh, question is from Camilla. They ask, I'm a lesbian. I, I am a lesbian who tends to attract unavailable straight women, most of whom have boyfriends already. I've never acted on these, their advances or helped them cheat on anyone, but these situations have ended friendships. Do you have any tips for people who are always being wanted by people that they can never have in a real way? End of question. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things one could wonder about the individuals that are flirting with you or trying to have a relationship with you, even though they're in a relationship. And is it some unexpressed bisexuality? Is it that they might think, well... If I'm with a lesbian, it seems like I'm not cheating as much or something. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's just a lot of different. Are, are these women uh, closeted lesbians and stuck in a, a, you know, relationship that society is forcing them to be in? And when you come along, you, ex- you know, show them that they can be something that they actually want to be, and then. Something comes out there. But anyway, your your main question is, you know, do I have any tips on people who are always being wanted by people they they can never have in a real way? Well, so it's hard to know. I mean, it could be bad luck. It could be the sort of people you hang around with, just, you know, the sort of the demographics that you hang around with. It could be that you're just extremely attractive to certain kinds of people and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, but the one thing that you know you might want to look at that you do have some control over, which is what signals are you giving off and or are you actually secretly flirting yourself? I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is, no, I'm not flirting. I, I'm just, these are friends. And But it's possible that uh, unbeknownst to yourself, you might be, I don't know, giving some indication or you're, a, a, you know, some people when they're friends, they can be kind of flirty with their friends. And if you're a very desirable person, then some people might really go for it with you a lot. But, you know, it's kind of blaming the victim to some extent to, to look at it that way. I don't know. You know, there's, there's just a lot of different things. I, I guess the more broader question that I've definitely been asked is, you know, a lot of people, when I, I seem to get a lot of people around me who 
they instantly want to be my best friend or they they instantly want to be with me romantically, even though I'm just trying to live my life and it's getting kind of bothersome. People at work, friends of mine, like once a week, someone will profess that they love me and they want to be with me. And it's flattering, but it's really ruining a lot of my friendships, you know, like, like you're saying, Camilla. And yeah, that's a tough one. You know, I, I think the people that I've, known who were like that were just it, they just had something about them that made them very attractive to others and there's various different uh, reasons i think why those people are the way that they are i think one of the reasons is that they give off a very safe vibe to people that you can be trusted that you are true and honest and authentic and good. And when you come across someone like that, and it's rare to come across someone like that, you just want to be with that person. You know, I could see some of the straight women uh, coming across you if you were that sort of person and just being like, I don't care if she's a woman. I just want to be with her. She makes me feel so good. I just want to meld with her. So that's one thing I've seen. The other thing I've seen is, some people are very interesting and very entertaining and seem slightly out of reach. And I think there is something about our species that compels us to chase things that are just out of our reach. Yeah, I think it's a, when it's like when the scarcity principle or I can't scarcity bias, I can't remember the social, social psychology term, but Black Friday, you know, you you go into a Walmart and there's just one TV left. And even though you weren't really going to buy a TV, suddenly you need to have that TV. We 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 seem to have that bias, that cognitive uh, tendency. And I think it applies to romance too. And I think that when we come across someone that is very compelling or interesting seeming, but they're just out of our reach. It, it, I think it kicks in some kind of mechanism that causes us to, to chase. And, uh, you know, maybe you have that kind of quality. I, I, I have a friend who was very much like that. She was very interesting and very bubbly and smart and creative and, yet just out of people's reach and people just could not help themselves around her. I mean, she was a, she is a very good friend of mine and, uh, I, I grew up with her and I would just see people just falling over her, to be with her. And it was, it became like this comical thing to watch. You know, we would go to some social event, some party or something. And I would just, and then people would come up to me. I was just like, who is that? Like, how, I feel like I want to marry her. <laughs> I'd just be like, oh, God. It, it was all the time. She was just breaking hearts. And she was just being herself. You know, she, was, she wasn't flirting. She wasn't leading anyone on. She was just being nice and, and that sort of thing. Another, another path, I think, is uh, – I think this applies mainly to women – is in our society – because of the way our genders are socialized, 
men are taught to chase and women are taught to allow ch- chases, if you know what I mean. And for some women, they don't like to play that game and instead don't have any problem just walking up to men or anyone and striking up a conversation that is platonic. And for some men, they will, they'll, they'll just, they'll be beside it. It's like, wait, this woman just comes up to me and talks to me. And from the woman's perspective, it's just like, no, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I just want to meet friends. I'm not, I'm not here to make romantic or sexual partners. I'm just here to make friends. And some men will, they'll, they will not know how to compute that. And it'll, it'll like throw their entire being, (laughs) uh, you know, into a, into some kind of frenzy and it will make them be very compelled towards that woman. So there's those possibilities too. So a very innocent way of just approaching random people and being nice can, can sometimes, you know, really just cause men to just be like, I need to be with her. Um, and, uh, that's not your fault, but, it is something to think about as you sort of head into those sort of gendered arenas, if you will. Um, You know, and I said, there's another possibility that you might actually be trying to, there might be some unconscious thing that you're doing, uh, which of course, you know, you'd explore with a therapist. Next question from Tony. They ask, how do you control the urge to check your partner's chats? That's a great question. How do you control the urge to check your partner's chats or to check your partner's phone, this sort of thing? You don't control the urge. You don't do it because it's wrong to violate other people's privacy without their permission. But you you dig down and figure out where the feelings are coming from. So let me give an analogy. Let's say that you are very thirsty and you haven't had a drink of water all day long, but you're not really in touch with your thirst needs, and you find yourself wanting to jump into a lake. You just have this urge to jump into a lake. You don't know why. And you're like, I need to stop having this urge to jump into a lake. Okay, so the trick would be, well, why do I want to jump into a lake? Let me think about it. Huh, well, I haven't drank water in a whole day. Maybe I need to drink water. So it's not that you want to jump into a lake, it's that you're thirsty. Okay. So as you have an urge to check your partner's chats, that's not what you have an urge to do. That's not the original urge. The original feeling is attachment insecurity. And as you have that need, you're manifesting it as an invasion of the person's privacy. Because of course, if you check your partner's chats, that's not going to alleviate, you know, jumping into a lake isn't going to relieve your thirst, right? It'll be very shocking and it'll be very noticeable. It'll be distracting in the moment, but unless you drink the lake water, which wouldn't be advised. And in the same way, checking your partner's chats is not going to address the fundamental attachment and security that you're experiencing. So you think about it and then you dig down deep. Oh, I must be feeling attachment insecure. How do I alleviate my attachment insecurity? Well, I build a secure attachment with not only my partner, but with many people. And when I have that, I won't have the urge to jump into the lake or check my partner's chats. That's going. 
All right. This is a quintessential dating question from Kat. They ask, what does one need to look for in a partner? What does one need to look for in a partner? Well, of course, it's highly personal, but some general things that I could say would be compatibility. Does the person make you feel good or bad about yourself? Does the person, is the person, how does the person respond when you ask nicely for your needs to be met? Does the person listen to you? Is the person interested in listening to you? Does the per, is the person vulnerable with you? Uh, how does the person deal with their own vulnerability? Can the, is the person humble? Can the person apologize? That's probably the biggest one. Like it's because a lot of things. A, a good litmus test for a lot of problems is can the person take responsibility and apologize? That's a big one because if they can't, that there's a lot of possibilities as to what's going on there that are not good. Um, so. Maybe that's what I'll say. <laughs> Look for someone that can say, oh, yeah, sorry about that. Or, oh, yeah, I did that thing, you know. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. Uh, it's such a wonderful quality and can make up for so many other issues. You can you can have so many personality flaws, but if you can deeply apologize, real, authentic, it's just, you know, it, there's so many good things that can happen from that. Ali asks, what's the real reason for people's jealousy? Why is it that some people, obs- why do? Why is it that some obsessed people would go so far as to appear at their partner's workplace with the idea that something shady is going on, even if there is not? Uh, it's because of attachment security. When, when you're worried about losing your attachments and you don't feel like you have any functional way of dealing with it, uh, then you try to control because it feels like it's going to work. There's this need of like, I need to feel like this person isn't going to leave me and I need to feel like this person is not going to be with anyone else because then that will mean that they're going to leave me. I don't have a way to communicate that. I don't even have a way of necessarily knowing that. And so I'm going to take a shortcut and, and do, do the only thing I know how to do, which is to control and invade, because that will answer the question. You know, if I, if I can break into their workplace and spy on them, then I can be reassured that they're not cheating on me. There's so many other pathways, right? Yeah, that's the reason for jealousy. Next question from Natasha. My, boyf- my boyfriend won't let me be friends with other guys. He justifies this by saying that they secretly like me and can't be trusted. Is he justified in keeping me from these potential, quote-unquote, harmful guys? My boyfriend also doesn't let me wear certain clothes because he fears for my safety, quote-unquote. So I don't know your situation, Natasha, but these are pretty big red flags for a high-control relationship. So as I've been saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with jealousy, really. It's what we do with it. There's nothing wrong with attachment insecurity. It's what we do with it. And... For some people, when they experience attachment and security, their solution is to control, and they don't know any other way. And they will start with little controls, and they will escalate it. So at the beginning, it's a matter of like, no, you can't really be friends with guys, or you know what, maybe not wear that one thing. But their insecurity doesn't go away. And so 
as the relationship. So say you give in on these things. Well, their attachment insecurity will persist and they'll look for additional controlling solutions to alleviate their attachment insecurity. And so they won't let you be friends with girls, with women. They won't let you wear anything. They won't let you leave the house. They won't let you have social media. It just, it tends to progress because they're chasing a dragon. They're chasing a ghost. They're, they believe that if they control, they can reduce their, and it will temporarily reduce their attachment insecurity, but the attachment insecurity will, will come on strong, you know, soon. So unless he knows this about himself and gets therapy, it, it, you run the risk of this happening and it progressing in it and you becoming broken down and controlled and abused. It can escalate to violence and sexual violence. So Natasha, be very careful about and everyone be very careful about partners like this and and it women can be this way too women can be very controlling along these lines as well so that's what i'll say about that um but you're saying you know is he justified in keeping you from these potential harmful guys no if you want to have friends and they happen to be men he is not justified in just saying uh well, I mean, the way you phrase it, you're like, my boyfriend won't let me be friends with other guys. No, no one, no one is justified in barring another person from being friends with someone else. Now, he could say, it's a deal breaker for me that my partner is, is um, my, that my partner has friends that are boys. You know, he could say, I can't deal with that. But he has to make that choice for himself. He can't impose that policy on other people. It's not a great policy, I would say, but uh, he can make that choice if he's just like, well, I need to break up with this, but he can't say, you can't, I'm not going to let you be friends with other guys. That's, that's a huge red flag. It's one thing to get jealous. It's one thing to be upset. It's another thing to not let you be friends, okay? Um, and, and then he says, you know, they secretly like you. That's not necessarily true. And uh, of course, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> it's a it's a ridiculous cultural notion that's out there that is perpetuated by all sorts of sexist issues. But uh, certainly, now might these other guys like you? Yeah, maybe. Might you like them? I don't know. Uh, can these guys be trusted? Well, the issue is, can you be trusted? That you know, because let's say that all your guy friends, Natasha, secretly like you, and at some point will hit on you. Well, if you don't like them, then everything's fine, right? You know, let's say the guys are like, hey, let's make out. And you're like, nope, I don't want to. My cat just jumped down. I don't know if you heard that little crash. Let's say that they, you know, one of the guys secretly likes you and says, hey, let's make out. Well, if if you can be trusted, then you're just going to be like, no, I have a boyfriend. I don't want to make out with you. This whole notion of, well, if other guys are going to like you, uh, so what? <laughs> you know, uh, and this notion of like, well, I need to possess my woman. You know, my woman is mine, and no man can look at her. Is a just a really sexist idea. Um. Anyway, Casey says, "What is the best way to navigate moving in with a partner? What are normal obstacles during the moving in transition, or what are some red flags to look out for?" Those are two questions, but. The moving in process with a partner is extremely fraught. So 
a lot of couples will they'll be kind of giddy, right? They're like, "Yay, we're moving in together." Uh, okay, good that you're happy, but there are going to be ups and downs. <laughs> you know, even if you've dated for five years, when you move in with someone, it is a huge transition. There are so many changes that occur, and uh, just be ready. There's there's going to be ups and downs, and it's going to be adjustment. In some ways, it's starting the relationship. Uh, it's starting. In some ways, it's essentially starting the relationship at another level of intensity, right? And you know, because a lot of people will say it's like, oh, you know, it's the next step. Okay, great, but know that you 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 had your relationship before you lived together, and you now you're going to be in a relationship while living together and they will be different relationships. Um, so take it seriously, I guess is my point. Here's another question that I get a lot on Anon Ananya says, how do you bring up marriage if you aren't sure whether or not your partner is okay with it? Uh, bring it up. <laughs> like, uh, you know, so there, there's a number of scenarios. Your partner desperately does not want to marry you. And will be terrified if you bring it up. There's another scenario where your partner is going in that direction and willing to talk about it. There's another scenario where your partner really wants to talk about marriage with you and is waiting for you to bring it up. So you bring up marriage and your partner's like, oh my God, me too. Okay, win-win. You bring it up and your partner's like, yeah, okay, you know, definitely on the agenda, but... Uh, you know, I need a lot more time. All right, now you know. That's good. Sounds like you're both heading in the right direction. Third scenario, you bring up marriage and your partner's like, oh my God, no, I don't want to marry you or this is way too soon. What are you doing? Well, you should know that, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, uh, uh, And let's say your partner is like, I break up with you because you brought up marriage. Well, it's good to find that out now than later, right? Don't don't wait. Um, find out now. Don't waste your time. The other thing I'll say is, what are you afraid of? And I would address that in therapy. Are you afraid of rejection? And is this a general pattern that you're in where you're afraid to bring something up because you're quite sure you're going to be rejected for being who you are? If you want to marry someone and that's in your heart, you deserve to voice that. And if someone doesn't like that, they deserve to say they don't like it. So uh, I wonder where that question is coming from, I guess is the point. All right, here's another question from Hannah. She says, it seems like every guy I date cannot let go of watching pornography. I do not watch it because I have morals, and there are men who don't have to watch it. And there are men who don't have to watch it. I feel hopeless. Why do we... Why have we normalized watching porn? All right. So your question, you're bringing some background, but your, so your question is, why have we normalized watching porn? Well, it's a complicated topic, and I you know, briefly kind of talked about it earlier, but we've perhaps normalized it because it's not abnormal. <laughs> a lot of people watch porn. Now, uh, I want to be clear, Hannah, not everyone watches porn, and it sounds like you don't want to watch porn for what you're calling moral reasons, um, but don't don't confuse 
your moral with this with a general human moral. You know, it's a ge- it's a general human moral not to murder people, right? It's not a general human moral not not to watch porn. So uh, it's important to understand, and there's a lot of philo- philo- philosophy in that area that I go into, but uh, it's okay to have a moral of not watching porn, but it's not a universal human moral, you understand? In the same way that some people consider it to be immoral to be gay, but that's not a universal human mor- moral idea. It is a universal a near universal human moral idea not to murder, not to steal, not to harm others, not to cause pain unjustifiably, not to take other people's things, not to, you know, scheme against other people. It's it's a near universal understanding that that is not okay. Uh, pornography, uh, being gay, these are not universal moral ideas. But you can have that moral, and that's fine. And you should find someone who shares that moral. And you're bummed out because all the guys you happen to come across have a different moral. And that's all it is. It's just different. It's just, a di- you're, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing you're being taught that the world is going to crap and pornography and the devil are taking over and they're taking away all the good men. I don't know, but I, I'm just going to take a stab and say maybe that's the world you live in. And that's fine, too, if that's the point of view. But uh, there are plenty of men out there who have the same value that you do around pornography. Uh, They might not be that frequent, but they're out there. And just find those people. There's probably a dating site that literally has this as part of its platform. You know, I don't know, Christian uh, dating sites, you know, evangelical Christian dating sites might have these kinds of elements. I don't know. But you deserve to have someone who uh, is compatible with you. It, it it will limit your your options for sure. Um, so, you know, but you're entitled to that. You're entitled to see the world that way, to have that preference. Not a problem. You just have to enter. And if you just date the, you know, if you just sort of date general men in the world, in, you know, in the United States anyway, uh, chances are you're coming across someone that at least occasionally looks at porn. And the same with women. Well, uh, I can't remember the exact stats, but most most women look at porn occasionally too. Now, again, before I get emails, I, I understand that some pornography is extremely harmful and that there are literally sex slaves being forced to produce pornography. Yes, that happens. And it's terrible. And it is happening all over the world. And it is one of the worst things that's happening right underneath our noses. And there are people either unknowingly or even knowingly paying for these kinds of pornography content and uh, creating whole billions of billions of dollars industry and, you know, millions and millions of victims. And yes, that happens. And there is plenty of pornography being produced by ethical producers who are not harming anyone and everyone is consenting and, and everyone loves their job. And um, some people are producing porn just on their own, just one person with a camera at home making porn. And uh, that person wants to do it and they're not 
complicated about it. So there's a wide variety of pornography producers, especially today, and there's a way to navigate that world in the same way that, you know, if you buy clothing, uh, there are certain clothing brands or, you know, lines that are produced by slaves in other countries. Um, what we might not necessarily call slaves, but essentially it's slavery, right? you know, sweatshops, this kind of thing. And then there are clothing producers that are ethical. So it's up to the consumer and society and the press to to out the unethical producers and to highlight the ethical producers. That's the point. Um, the other thing that sometimes I'll go emails about is they'll, they'll, people will just be like, well, but pornography is gross. And okay, it's gross to you and you can have that value, but it's not gross to everybody. And uh, it's okay that it's gross to you. It's okay that it it's disgusting. It's okay that you don't want to look at it. It's okay that you don't, you don't like to associate yourself with people who look at it. You know, it's okay. Uh, but understand that that's just your preference in the same way that some person might think it's disgusting. You know, like uh, when you have to clean the litter box, some people refuse to clean the litter box, the cat litter box, because <laughs> they think it's disgusting. Okay, don't get a cat. <laughs> uh, I've had cats. For a long time, and I am completely accustomed to cleaning the litter box. It does not bother me at all. It bothered me at first, I'll tell you, but you get used to it. And um, so uh, it's okay to be disgusted by something, but um, as Fiona, my colleague at Antioch, says, uh, it's a common saying, but it's don't yuck my yum, is, is or don't yuck other people's yums, meaning if if other people enjoy something sexually and and you don't like it uh that's okay but don't don't yuck their yum you know when when someone expresses a sexual kink of some kind or a sexual preference or looking at porn or whatever you don't want to go ew that's disgusting you know you don't shame we have enough shame in our world particularly around sexuality that we shouldn't be adding to it just because we have a preference. It's okay to have a preference. You know, it's the same goes for food. You know, if, if you don't like a certain kind of food, just say, you know, not for me, but don't look at it and go, Oh my God, that's disgusting. You know, cause it could be someone else's, uh, you know, soul food. So, you know, don't yuck other people's yum. It's <laughs> the point you're, you're completely free to feel like something is yucky, but don't yuck their yum. <laughs> Uh, by the way, if you're interested in becoming a sex therapist, Antioch, my program, CFT program, couple of family therapy program, we have a thriving sex therapy program now um, headed by Fiona O'Farrell, a colleague of mine. And um, uh, so contact Antioch University Seattle and become a sex therapist. Anna says, my partner is Muslim and I am Christian. As much as we're in love and respect each other's beliefs, we're concerned about the ways our varying faith will impact our future children. What are your thoughts on interfaith relationships and the impact of this situation? That's a great question. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things to talk about. What sort of Muslim is your partner? What sort of Christian are you? Uh, how do you want to raise your kids? How are your kids going to adjust to it? It really just 
depends on a lot of different things. But the first thing that pops in my head is that in America, we tend to look at Muslims as this completely foreign religion, but it is very similar to Christianity. It shares the same exact roots as Christianity does. So in some ways, you could consider uh, Islam to be an offshoot of Christianity, and a lot of people do consider it that way. Now, culturally speaking, since there have been literally religious wars, they we tend to look, oh, they're very opposite. Well, it just depends on your point of view. At the very least, Islam and Christianity share a lot, if not most, if not all, of the same principles of love and charity and family and uh, respecting God and forgiveness and uh, serving your people and humility. Um, both religions share a lot of similarities. When you listen to the sermons, they're usually about the same things. Now, of course, to the bigoted American, you know, the Muslims are all about jihad and war and all this stuff. And it's just not true. <laughs> it's just, it's like, you know, pull your head out of your butt. It, it's, I guess, you know, your echo chamber is teaching you that, but it's just not true. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, you know, religions uh, emerge in social structures for a reason and they emerge from humans and they emerge from the same intention often, which is to govern behavior and to elevate us to the divine uh, Islam is that way and Christianity is that way. And so a lot of the principles are the same. So it, it looks different. It sounds different sometimes, but it, it's fundamentally very similar. And so when you're raising your children, one way to do it is just to look to the overlap between the two and just and teach that and say, well, here's how, you know, Muslim people talk about it. And here's how Christ, Christians talk about it. But here's the principle that both talk about. So, you know, that's one way to do it. The other way is alternate between the different churches, different Sundays. <laughs> um, you know, often what people will do is they'll just pick one, right? Um, or pick neither, right? So, you know, but there's so many ways to do it. Or pick a third one, you know, say, ah, you know what, let's just, you know, sometimes people is like, do we hyphenate our last name? Do we pick your last name? You know what? Let's just make up a totally different last name. <laughs> Maybe just pick a different religion that you both can agree on. I don't know. Uh, Anonymous says, what does it mean when the person you are thinking of marrying does not want to disclose their past and becomes defensive when you bring it up? What does it mean when the person you are thinking of marrying does not want to disclose their past and becomes defensive when you bring it up. What does it mean? It means that they're afraid of something, probably. So, I don't know what they'd be afraid of, but that's usually that's usually what it means. They're they're afraid, and or they just don't want to talk about it, and or they have PTSD, and when they think about it, they're they literally are thrown into dissociative distress. So, there's a lot of possibilities. All right, famous patron Lyndon. Wow, Lyndon, I haven't heard from you in a while. Where have you been? 
Um, is there wisdom in playing a little hard to get? Is there wisdom in playing a little hard to get? Um, certainly online, there will be discussions around this, and people have very firm opinions. And uh, I would say that uh, to say, generally speaking, it's a good idea to play hard to get with every situation. No, that sounds just utterly silly. But I think usually what people are talking about is uh, because you would only concern yourself with that question if you found yourself um, not playing hard to get and it not working for you somehow. So, you know, you enter into a dating relationship and you really kind of go for it and you become vulnerable and you're like, hey, I like you. And then the person runs away from you or some kind of sequence like that. And you're like, wait, should I have played hard to get? Is that the problem here? Well, it's complicated because when two people really like each other, then often you don't have to play hard to get. You don't have to play any game, you know. Playing hard to get implies that there's a little bit of a game. Now, if you come on real strong, real fast, and that's your tendency, then uh, pulling back a little bit might help. Yeah. And if that's your, and if you're going to frame that as playing hard to get, then okay. So really, it you know, it comes down to what the other person is looking for. Some people like a little bit of a chase. Some people like things to go slow. Some people like a little mystery. Some people don't. Um, but the thing I tell people is just be yourself. Eventually, you'll find your person. And uh, dating and meeting your one should not require playing games. Uh, and if you find yourself working real hard, then you're, it's probably not the right person. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't have to require a lot of scheming, <laughs> you know, with me and my wife, there, there was no scheming. It was, there was, it was completely uncomplicated. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, there was thoughts that went into it, but, um, it was just not a problem. At no point was I like, oh, are we going too fast? You know, we just liked each other and we didn't know each other very well in the beginning, but it it was clear that we enjoyed spending time with each other and then, you know, slowly but surely it grew anyway. New and frequent contributor Patrick. Oh, these are from the Facebook, Facebook fan page. We've made it to the bottom of this list. Um that Colin put together. So Colin is on the Facebook fan page, and so he gathered these questions. Um, new and frequent contributor, Patrick, says, what are your tips on long-term dating for people who are very introverted and have trouble expressing feelings in a way their partner can understand? What are your tips on long-term dating for people who are very introverted and have trouble expressing feelings in a way their partner can understand? Well, introverted people aren't necessarily bad at expressing their feelings. Um, so I don't know what you mean by introverted necessarily, but it sounds like you have trouble expressing your feelings in a way that your partner can understand. Uh, well, just keep trying and be okay with it not going well. You know, if, if you have trouble expressing your feelings, just say, hey, you know what? I have trouble expressing my feelings, but I'm going to give it a try. But maybe you're saying that you are very anxious about expressing your feelings at all. And, well, you know, go to therapy and 
work on that. There's probably some cognitions that could be changed. There's some getting used to it that could be changed. Um, let's see. Many times it feels like I'm fighting an uphill battle trying to find Mr. Right up here in Alaska. We're still in Patrick's question. And I think I still may have some unresolved shame from growing up as a gay person in a highly devout, evan- highly devout evangelical Christian community. How should I go about sorting this out? Okay, so many times I feel like I'm fighting an uphill battle trying to find Mr. Right up here in Alaska. Well, the first thing I'll say is plenty of gay people in Alaska, except, you know, as you probably know, Patrick, and you just have to find them. <laughs> They're up there. Uh, I think per capita, you're going to find more in Seattle or San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, this kind of thing. But but they're up there in Alaska, you know. Um, so, you know, keep trying. I think I still may have some unresolved shame from going up as a gay person in a highly devout Christian community. Yeah, I mean, really, it's just a matter of degree for every gay person how much internalized homophobia you have. Some people have just a little, some people have a lot, and so you probably have a lot. And the the way you, to recovery is there's many ways to recovery, but you know, obviously therapy with someone that specializes in this, you know, perhaps a gay therapist can help. There's also support groups for Christians who have come out as gay. Um, in Seattle, there are you know many groups like that. I don't know if there are in your community in Alaska, but there are online, right? Um, you can uh, get support with other gay people. Uh, a lot of gay people, if not a majority, have grown up in at least an environment of homophobia. Uh, and, you know, talk about it, talk it out, cry the tears. The other thing is creativity. Write poems, you know, write a punk song, um, perform, you know, write a play about your experiences, draw a painting of your experience of how you feel on the inside. Um, write up, you know, these are things you can do. But the bottom line is, is that you're a good person, Patrick, and you deserve to be in a world that does not discriminate against you and does not think ill of you, does not think that you're wrong and does not think that you're going to hell and does not think that you need to be changed. You're good as you are. You're a special, warm, good person who is trying. And there's many people out there who would want to be with you and will be patient with you and will take the time for you to express your feelings, you know, and, and be, and be a safe person. And you might have a lifetime of crying about the internalized homophobia you've experienced and a lifetime of crying about the homophobia you experience on a daily basis. So you deserve to cry those tears and be heard. All right. There's a couple questions related to this, but I'll read Jessica's or Jess's question. In the past, I have often had people act committed, but say they never want to put a label on our relationship. How can you tell if someone is really committed? All right. So I'm going to take a guess that you're younger and that the people you're dating are, you know, you enter into a relationship with you 
and after a certain point you start you start talking about being committed being exclusive and your partner is like yeah i don't want to put a label on it but you see them frequently and they don't seem to be dating other people and you're in this gray zone you're just like i don't understand what's going on here well there's various different you know ways to look at this one is is that they're dating other people and they're just not telling you and or they want to date other people and they don't want to tell you directly but that's essentially what they're saying. I mean, if, if you're saying, hey, let's be an exclusive, committed relationship, they're like, ah, I don't want to label it. I mean, I guess the other possibility is that they just have a really hard time having a conversation about this. And maybe deep down they do want a committed, but I don't, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't make that assumption. <laughs> uh, I would make the assumption of like, oh, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people. So here's a little tip, people. <laughs> People are terrified of telling the truth because they're terrified of disapproval. And so when someone tells you that they don't want to label their relationship, they have a lot of reasons in that moment to go along with what you're saying. Because if they even somewhat agreed with you, there's a lot of reasons to agree with you of just like, oh, well, she wants to be in a committed relationship. And, and so do I for the most part. So I don't want to lose her and I want to be with her and I don't want her to be with anyone else. And so, yeah, okay, yeah, let's make this committed. Let's make this exclusive. Okay. But let's say you're in a situation where you're like, yeah, I'm not really at that point in my life or, yeah, I don't know if this person's really the one. And, yeah, you know, casual dating, maybe long-term casual dating, maybe long-term relationship, but, you know, I, I – I don't, I don't really want to commit. I, I want to keep my options open. Well, and then you get approached and you're like, hey, um, uh, you know, you approach him. You're like, hey, let's be in a committed relationship. Well, in that moment, he, there's a possibility. There's a very common profile where he's like, ah, crap. If I tell the truth, I'm going to say, you're not the one. I really like hanging out with you, but you're not the one. Or... I really like hanging out with you, but I'm not ready to be, you know, exclusive. Or I really like hanging out with you, but in my experience, when I become exclusive, then I get I feel really trapped, and I want to feel that way. I'd rather live in an, amb- an ambiguous gray zone than than not. Um, but what they're going to say often because a lot of people will lie by omission or just flat out lie because they're anxious about disapproval. They'll be like, eh, I don't want to put a label on it. And they'll avoid being authentic and telling you how they really feel because they're terrified of you being upset, which is not a valid way of living life, <laughs> but it's a way a lot of people live life. And so if you hear someone say, eh, I don't want to put a label on it, you know, it's, it's uh, who knows, but there's a chance that there's a huge iceberg beneath the water that they that they should be telling you, but they don't want to tell you because they're they're worried about disapproval. So, uh, you know, because when two people want to be in an exclusive relationship, they will say it not because they want to necessarily be truthful. That's one reason, but the other is is they don't want to lose that person. You know, when me and my wife are together and we're in an exclusive relationship because we're 
that's our relationship. Um, you know, neither one of us hesitate around that commitment because one, it's what we want. And two, we don't, we don't want to lose the other person. So you just have to think about all that. If, if someone is just like, yeah, I don't want to put a label on it. You just have to wonder, okay, what's, what's going on behind that statement that, uh, they're too afraid to tell me because there's so many reasons to go along with what you're saying if they agreed with you, you know, anyway. Again, I don't know, and obviously, you know, you would have to talk with a therapist or them to really figure it out. So I guess the advice I would have is like, hey, when I say committed, you say you don't want to label it. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. I just don't want to label it. Are you saying that you want to be able to date other people? Because, you know, and I'm not going to yell at you. I'm, I'm really wanting to know where we're at. Well, you know, I just don't want to put a label on it. Okay. Do are you op- are you dating other people or not? Well, you know, I just don't want to put a label on it. <laughs> you know, like feel free to grill the person, your partner on where they're at. You deserve to know where they're at and it's okay to ask. And if they run away from you because you're asking, then good riddance. <laughs> uh, now, you don't want to ask in a way that is a jerk face, but you deserve to ask. Uh, I get a lot of questions like this, honestly. It's like, well, how do I ask about this? Um, just ask. I mean, <laughs> what are you afraid of? You know, if you're, it, I, most people, I'm guessing, you're, oh, I don't want to push them away. Well, if that pushes them away, then so be it. If they're that close to running away from you, then good riddance. Really, move on. You don't want someone. Uh, you don't want to be involved with someone who's that fragile. They're you know, they have a tiny thread of connection to you. You deserve way more security than that. Amber says, "How can I best handle?" co-telework and cohabitation during COVID? Oh, <laughs> that's a great question, Amber. Yeah. Uh, you know, me and my, my wife are in the same thing. Yeah. A lot of couples are, because of the pandemic, working from home and, uh, you know, you're isolated. I mean, it's better than being completely by yourself. There's a lot of people who, during the pandemic, are completely cut off from other people. So it's it's a it's a wonderful thing to be cooped up with other people instead of alone, but depending, of course. But but yeah, best handle. Well, you know, there's a lot of different things. Obviously working together. Um I mean it really depends on the relationship, right? Because if the relationship is going well, then things will go well. I, I guess the thing I'll say is if there were any cracks in the foundation of the relationship, it'll be challenged by this. And so it'll give you a chance to see where those cracks are and work on it. But, uh, you know, maybe taking a break from each other every now and then, you know, I, I know some couples who they live in a small apartment and they're, they can't really get away from each other physically. (laughs) You know, me and my wife have our own offices. So, when I'm working, you know, I close the door to, I close the doors to my office and I'll be in here for hours just working. And so it makes it easier for me to work, 
but for some people, they don't have that luxury. And so they're both sitting in the living room working and that would be hard, you know, that would, so maybe figuring out a way one of you goes to the bathroom and works or something. I don't know, but yeah, it's tough. It's, it's, it's a tough situation. I've been talking for, I think, two hours, but I'm so close to the end. I want to finish this. Amna on Facebook says, Some of my friends keep dating people who don't match them in any way. Usually, they either have nothing in common, very different personalities or lifestyles, or very different family backgrounds. How can we tell if someone is compatible with us in the long term? End of question. Uh, Hard to know. I mean, there's just so much to say. But it's usually a trial and error thing, honestly. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of money and research on trying to determine if we can determine if people are compatible before they meet. You know, this is what a lot of these websites, these dating websites will claim, you know, take this personality test and, and answer these questions and we can determine if you are a good match for someone. Well, the science is just not there. Human attraction and human long-term relationship viability is extremely fickle. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to lock down. There are too many factors. And, you know, you, you take all these tests and you try to figure it out. But until they meet and they try each other on for size, there's, you just don't know. Matchmaking is really hard. And thus, it's really hard for any individual to know in advance if someone is compatible. It's trial and error. That's it's best I could say. I mean, you could, you could make some guesses like, well, I generally don't like people who are really into their jobs, or I generally don't like people who don't like to exercise, or I generally don't like people who are Republican <laughs> or something. Um, you know, you could make some guesses about that, but even that, you know, it's – you don't know it until you try it is kind of the thing. And uh, that's why we date. <laughs> uh, Rueda says, what do you think the biggest challenges are for people trying to date avoidant or preoccupied people? Wow. Uh, the biggest challenges for dating an avoidant person is to not feel like they don't love you. And the biggest challenge for dating a preoccupied person is to not feel that they're demanding things of you and uh, pressuring you in general. Lisa says, I am asking this for my friends who are trying to find new relationships at this awful time. How does one navigate dating during COVID? Well, I've already answered this question, I think, earlier. But, um, well, you got to stay safe. And that also means you don't want to become a vector for the virus. So online dating, perhaps, and then you meet six feet apart, maybe with masks on, maybe not, you know, maybe 10 feet apart outside, no mask, you know, follow the guidelines, <laughs> whatever they are in your area and get to know people. And then if you really like someone, then maybe you cross the threshold into exchanging fluids, if you will, <laughs> and you take precautions to make sure that you're not infecting each other or other people. You know, there's a way to date. It, it complicates things for sure. You know, really complicates things. But, you know, I could see it enhancing things. You know, you meet up someone at the park. You meet someone on Tinder and you meet up at the park and it's daytime and you're 10 feet apart. And, 
and you're talking and you're laughing and you're getting to know each other. It's kind of awkward. And you have this urge. You just want to, you just want to kiss him. You just want to hug him, but you can't. And you know, that, that tension builds in you while you, you know, you go home, you go, Oh, I just wanted to kiss him or something. And then you meet up again. Maybe you say that over text. You're like, Oh boy, I really wanted to kiss you, but you know, I know that COVID blah, blah. And he's like, Oh, that would have been great. I will, you know, Surely there's a rom-com coming out <laughs> with this involved. But, you know, love finds a way. Um, all right, this final, this final thing from Superfan Elliot. Uh, okay. I offer Kirk and Berto my homage. I want to be sung to. Closest I'll get to a date in the pandemic. Um, what? <laughs> I want to be sung to uh, because that's the closest I'll get to a date during a pandemic. And then I think they wrote a um, a poem here. What is this? What did Colin put <laughs> in this document? Uh, I, so I'm just I'm just going to read this. Am I going to read this? All right. What? I'm just sort of reading ahead. This could get dirty. I'm not sure. Okay. Daddy Fire brought to you by The Empire Strikes Back. What? Daddy fire brought to you by the Empire Strikes Back. Hey, little Yoda, this is your daddy home. Did he go and leave you alone in your dome? Oh, got bad daddy desire. I can't read the rest of this. (laughs) What is this? Does she do better force than Yoda too? Oh, can, oh, can, oh, we can levitate higher. I can't read this whole thing. Edge, I'm skipping certain lines that are obviously dirty. Sometimes it's like someone took a lightsaber, edgy and dull, and cut a six-mile valley through the middle of the Death Star. Okay, so that's a line from uh, Bruce Springsteen. Sometimes I'm at home and go and leave you all alone. Uh-huh. So I'm not going to read this whole thing. Elliot, um, I'm guessing you got a bunch of uh, emojis on that question on the Facebook fan page. And uh, so if you want to read this whole uh, poem, go to the Facebook fan page and search for Elliot and search for Daddy Fire. And uh, you could read this whole Star Wars uh, innuendo extravaganza. And I am at the end of the document, which means I think this is literally the fifth. You know, if you include the episode I did with Mark and then I, I think I did two other dating episodes and now I'm doing two more. So, uh, my goodness, let's never talk about dating again. (laughs) I have so many other emails and topics to get to, and I'm excited to do it. I'm I'm, I'm heading into the end of December, which uh, normally would be a very busy time, obviously, but since the pandemic, there's nothing to do, and so I'm just going to be making podcasts. Um. And I want to thank Colin, if you're out there listening still, for putting all these things together. Colin's going to be, I think I said this earlier, uh, working on compiling emails by topic and this kind of thing. And so um, that'll be kind of fun. And compiling questions from the fan page and Discord and all that kind of stuff. So what do you think about what I've been talking about? I mean, if you didn't have thoughts, at least one about the things I've been talking about in these dating episodes, then what's wrong with you? (laughs) 
if you're on YouTube, you can comment below. If you're somewhere else, you can go to the website and click on the contact page, email me. If you're on the fan page, you can participate in the conversation. If you're on Discord, you can participate in the conversation. If we just happen to run into each other in person, you can just tell me what you think. Uh, and everyone out there, please take care of yourself truly. And get your needs met in whatever dating scenario you want to. You are a glowing globe of wonderfulness and you deserve to get all of your needs met in time. Why? Because you deserve it. You really, really do.